Welcome to the People First Leaders Podcast. My name is Doug Utberg, Marine Corps veteran, founder CEO of ExpenseReviews.com, and I have absolutely nothing to sell you. The purpose of this commercial-free show is to honor the leaders who approach life as go-givers by putting their people and customer value first. Stick around until the end of the show, and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in about 20 minutes. Let's go. All right, we have Joe Sheppy with us today. What we're actually going to be doing is, first of all, we're going to let Joe introduce himself so that you don't have to listen to me talk for the whole time. But then we're going to probe into kind of how Joe got to where he's at and just kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that he's learned throughout his career. So anyway, Joe, introduce yourself for us. Sure. Uh, Joe Sheppy, CEO and co-founder of Solston. Uh, Solston's a human insight engine. So we're at the literally the forefront of human understanding and, and human psychology We've been around for five years. We work with most major game developers. I have a background in adventure-based psychotherapy, was a UX director for a few different big companies, but really at the cusp of how do we use technology to better understand people? So one of my, there's a quote that I enjoy, but it's like, whoever created American cities must hate people because they, they were built around cars. And so a big part of what we care about is, is how do we build experiences that are, are human first rather than efficiency first? so to speak. What was that you, that you were just saying? Was that experience-based, no, adventure-based psychotherapy? I don't want yep. to take us on a tangent to start <laughs> off, but I just can't let that go. Yeah. So tell me, adventure-based psychotherapy, what is it? So happy to, yeah, happy to elaborate. So I started out in human factor psychology okay. and really didn't want to go into clinical psychology. I volunteered in a hospital when I was in high school. And just saw that a lot of things that happened there were mental health cases. And a few psychiatrists came to me and were like, Joe, you're not going to solve anything seeing eight patients a day. And really, you know, took that to heart. And I think, I, you know, you see about 50% of ER visits in the United States are mental health related. Of those, about seven out of eight go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. So I said, well, can we approach this from a bigger angle? Can we design experiences here? And then really realized when I did a really good job of inquiry with customers, with users of understanding who they are, people just open up naturally. And so I said, okay, there's, you know, I got to go back to school. So went back to grad school, did clinical psychology and specialized specifically. I looked for a school that had uh, adventure-based psychotherapy. Um, there's one school in Arizona, University of Georgia, and a school in Norway. So there's only three schools that do that. If we think about adventure-based psychotherapy, why it's brilliant. There's a book called Adventure Therapy that kind of is like the Bible of that stuff that's updated every few years. But if you think about your brain, so let's say you were like, I want to learn a new skill. It takes about 400 times of doing something before that new synapse will start to form, which is a lot. That's a lot of, so if you like, hey, I want to have a, a habit, maybe it's going to the gym, something like that. Like that's a lot of times before your brain actually starts to change in that way. What's interesting about play, when we're in a state of play, it only takes about 20 times. So adventure-based psychotherapy, what it focuses on is how do we use adventure settings? How do we use epinephrine or adrenaline in a positive way to be able to elicit both a lot of the psychological understandings, which flows into Solston a little bit. One of my favorite quotes is, show me how you play and I'll tell you who you are. That's part of adventure therapy. You get a much better idea of who a person is when they're out on a mountain and a little bit stressed out than when you're just sitting on a couch. So you get to the, the root of what's going on much faster. And then also in terms of change, that's much faster. And with games, Solston, we focus on games. So this was a part of my 
career path, games, we believe they're, they're the most accessible version of play. There's 3 billion people that play them every day. And if we talk about understanding human beings, behavior change, all this sort of stuff, games are a really great place to do that. Not as good as being in nature and in adventure settings, but much more accessible. Exactly. Because yeah, the, you know, who doesn't have access to Minecraft? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. Four, I say that only because that's one of my son's vices. It's Minecraft, Sonic, Mario Kart. <laughs> hey, but I, so a lot of parents, like when, back when I was a full-time therapist, people would say like, kids playing a lot of video games. Like, okay, what, you know, how much TV are they watching? And, oh, well, how much iPad time are they, you know, if we look at media, like passive media is, if you just kind of read all the studies on this stuff. It's so much worse for you. And if you look at games where games have cognitive benefit, uh, there's a really cool study that came out that showed that people when they're around 30, our fluid memory goes down, but people that continue to play games, their fluid memory keeps going up. So there's all these amazing cognitive benefits because it's a two-way media. It's not a passive media. So I posted something on LinkedIn, like, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago about how the amount of gaming and the amount of play, uh, digitally speaking, that based on neuropsychological development, kids should be doing at different ages. So when kids are like post 11 years old, um, there's actually some research showing that kids that played on average three hours of games a day, I know there's going to be parents that hate me for this, but... (laughs) It was one study, so just take that as a grain of salt, but kids that played on average for three hours a day, video games, so not TV, but video games, outperformed all their classmates in a significant way. So, you know, I, I know your, your son's probably listening like, Dad, I'm going to... Dad, like, <laughs> it's, it's science. You can't argue with it. Yeah, don't show him this episode. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So we inadvertently got to the how did you get to what you're doing right now? which uh, I think is a fascinating story. But what would you say is the biggest aha you've had in this journey? What's the biggest thing that kind of hit you on the side of the head? Because like, I do this where when I was young, I was 1000% convinced that I was right about everything. And, you know, I found that I tend to get just hit on the back of the head. It feels like all the time, but it's probably just I'm more open to the uh, depth of my own idiocy than I was when I was younger. But, you know, what was something that just completely blindsided you? Yeah, I think, you know, to reassert that point, it's, I mean, you don't get anywhere in life, I think, without learning how to be wrong well and how to learn from being wrong. And I know that I wouldn't be here if I didn't learn how to be wrong well. And I think, you know, when I was younger and especially before this journey with Solston, but even going into becoming like a mental health professional, I think you think like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to learn all this stuff and I'm going to help people or... We're going to go in, we're going to use this technology and it's, you know, we're going to understand audiences and people are going to apply it. Because typically when you have a thesis for something, you've seen what good looks like and what's possible. So like with our product at Solston, for example, Lisa Welch, who is now our VP of experience, but previously she was the, the VP of strategy at Activision. And one of the things I got to see early on was how she used our product. And you're like, wow, you know, there's, you kind of get a false positive because you see what a rock star can do with your product when you build a company. And this is as the entrepreneur's journey. And then you realize, you know, there's that book, Crossing the Chasm, which I really like. I think that's very, very real. You get all this energy from a lot of early adopters who they've, they've been like Lisa's title on LinkedIn. Like we kind of were like, wait, is this real? It was like elevating the human experience through play. And I'm like, that's one of the things I have in one of my media profiles too. Like, didn't even see that it was coincidence. And so I think, you know, you have this sort of thing that happens. And then when you get to mass market, I think we're one of the areas where we fell on our face 
pretty early on was realizing, wow, you know, we're having this psychology-based platform and the average person's understanding of psychology and how to apply applied psychology, how to use it, we were so far apart on that. And so, yeah, I wish I would have, like with Solstice specifically, I wish I would have really ramped up not only like our customer success sooner, but also we have specialists now. So we have people who actually have backgrounds in UX and, and CS, and that would have been huge for us earlier on. So you know, if I look back, I would have done that like two years before we actually started going there because I think we just felt like, oh yeah, like this is working really well. We're getting lots of customers, really good brands, really good logos. And then going to wait for this scale, really mass market. We really need to do a lot better at educating and bringing people into this brave new world. Well, unpack that with a couple of stories, you know, like Uncle Joe around the campfire. Because, yeah, I want to really make sure that I understand because I'm also personally fascinated and this is just my thinly veiled way of getting you to share more. For sure. Yeah. For So, you know, we a lot of companies are thinking about how do I be more customer centric? How do mm-hmm. I be more person centric? And typically they're turning to like demographic data, your age, you know, where you live, all those sort of things. Problem with that stuff, it is all changes. I can go and live in Berlin, which is where we started the company. And behaviorally, I'm eating different things, drinking different things, for, you know, it's a different place. So a lot of that stuff is just not really representative of who you are. And so we'd have, we had a game company, for example, that came to us and said, hey, we have all these completionists in our game and we really like, we're not seeing them complete stuff in the other game. And we mistake a lot of times as human beings, you know, everybody's a psychologist, but we mistake behavior for cognition. And so I said, well, completing something as a behavior, let's go look at why they might not be completing things in another game. So let's dig in, let's do a psychological assessment with that audience, this is part of our technology works. And then we can see, hey, you know what? Actually, all these people, the majority of them have a really high motivation for status. So out of all the different motivators we measured, that one was appearing to be really high. So that's a part of who they are rather than a behavior. And we said, hey, in that other game over there, why don't you allow them to get on leaderboards? Why don't you give them like really cool items that show status when they win stuff? And then they did that. They came back. They're like, oh, they're completionists again. It's like, no, no, no. They were never completionists. <laughs> and I think, you know, we we want to understand better, you know, and data finally proved that I'm right. Yeah. it's And we've been so, you know, the veil of the internet has been so limited to just behavior and demographics. Like you can have somebody on Google Maps, for example, and you're a a data scientist at Google and go, okay, all these people walked up to this door and all these people walked away from the door. But we predicted that they were going to go in the door and purchase something. And why didn't that happen? And then Solston comes along and goes, well, people are not irrational. That was not an irrational thing at all. What happened was there's a group of people that we see have a lot of social anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, oh, that makes sense. The store, we have a lot of data points showing the store is really crowded. Yeah, if you have social anxiety, you're not going to go in a really crowded place. But you could tell them, hey, there's a store a couple blocks up. Same thing. No people there. Nice. They can still go their way. Another part of that group, maybe like really high on forgetfulness, mm-hmm. you know, not conscientious. They just forgot their wallet. So like behaviorally, we can all look similar in a lot of, in a lot of different senses. But the reasons underneath that can be pretty different. So any kind of like what features should I have in my product? Like, How should I architect my experience? All these decisions, how we tie them to our values, our personality, 
a lot of people, for example, confuse emotions for things. They think that we act out of emotions, which couldn't be farther from the truth. If everybody was acting out of emotions, we'd live in a terrible, terrible world. That's why we regulate emotions. We have a mm -hmm. locus of control. You know, when your amygdala is overactive, you have a personality that helps to regulate those things yeah. for most people. Now, there's some people with personality disorders who cannot regulate their amygdala, and there's clinical criteria for that. Most of us, you know, our traits, our personalities, our values, all these things are basically what, you know, modulate our behavior and our emotions for that matter. And then that's also a lot of how we act in the world is based on fundamental things of who we are, which is tied to psychology. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay. So now your interaction with your clients, now, do you like work with people on like gamifying experiences or is it more of like helping to figure out data points that don't make sense? Kind of uh, uh, talk me through that. I, again, this is you know, thinly veiled uh, personal curiosity here. Yeah. Yeah. So like a way to think of Solston is, is we're building the cognitive layer of the internet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Kind of like when Google first started and they said, we're going to index all the information on the internet and we're going to make it searchable. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Like, it just, it sounds like this crazy idea. And the thing about games, so we mostly work with game companies. The thing about games is there's more complex strings of behavior that happen in games than anywhere else online. So let's just take an example like Instagram. There's, sure. chat, there's chat data, you're liking different images, different things. Well, if Instagram was actually indicative of who you are, they'd be able to serve up ads to you that actually resonated with you. Instagram does a really good job of working off of relevance. So it's like, hey, I just bought that thing. I'm seeing another ad based on that. Or I just searched that thing. I'm seeing... But relevance and resonance are two really different things. Like where I'm in Minnesota right now, windsurfing season is coming up. It's one of my biggest passions. Love windsurfing. It's, you know, the fall comes, low pressure systems come in. Seeing zero ads on windsurfing or related to any of... But that's where my heart's at. That's where things resonate for me. And so, you know, if we pick up like, well, who are you? So what Solston does is we hook into like a lot of big games. People are able to opt in. Everything's anonymous. So we never know who people are in real life. That's really important. We believe privacy is power and we believe you should own your psychological data and that should be separate from your identity. So that's how Solston works. We basically do two things. We submit a psychological assessment in game. So, hey want to improve your player experience, take this questionnaire. It's an adaptive assessment. So it's learning about you as you're taking it, kind of like the SAT or ACT. And then when you go through that, that's like our biological sample. That's just to, from a scientific perspective to ensure we're doing, that we have integrity around the data. And then the next part is as people are playing, oh, you know, ID 18547, their base got destroyed and they rebuilt it really fast. Cool. That's predictive of how they're resilient they are maybe. So we're then predicting traits and then we're like a real time Harry Potter sorting hat for any Harry Potter fans or uh -huh. people that have seen that. Ooh, like yeah, this one's courageous. Cool. Let's put them in the courageous bucket or Slytherin, this one. Every survey I've ever taken. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like that. So we're generating these groups of people that are unique to that experience. And then what that enables companies to do, for example, EVE Online is a customer of ours, like 20 year old game massive multi-online, multiplayer online game. Hey, we want to improve the first-time user experience. We've done everything you can, A-B tested it all. We can't get more people through it. 
what should we do? Well, let's just look at, so hook everything up. Let's look at your audience. And then we actually saw in that case, like there's a bunch of people high on altruism that were not going through that first seven days and say, hey, all those IDs that are in your experience, anything you want to label that's like helping other people, just route them to those parts of the experience. So it's like a very, very, very ghetto version of the matrix where now the experience is adapting to you based on who you are. And then they come back to us and like 20% more people are now going through our first seven day experience. It's an order of magnitude bigger. The reality is they were just limited to behavioral information before. So for the first time, it kind of helps companies understand why their users are doing what they're doing. And then the users get a better result too, because if you're going into an experience, you know, if I really value nature and if I'm a really altruistic person and someone's like, hey, you can help with forest conservation. And it's like, cool, that's me. It speaks to you. And so what's happening is we're seeing across the internet, the experiential reality and COVID caused a lot of this. So many people got immersed in digital products. Like we measure usability scores as a part of what we do for different experiences. They used to be like in the 65, 66 range for games pre-COVID. After COVID, a lot of the new games that are coming up are like 80 out of 100. So what's happened is the level of just like anything, digital experience that we have, consumers are expecting more than part of what Solston focuses on. And part of our vision is how do we make digital reality regenerative? So meaning like if, you know, sustainability is not sustainable. If it's just as it is now, it's just as it is now. But how could you create a podcast digital framework or a video game where you leave it feeling you got more out of it? So Solston tracks things like sleep quality of people, depression, anxiety, things like that. And it all, it's not on an individual basis. It all gets rolled up at an audience level. Mm -hmm. And then developers are able to see, hey, like this new feature we implemented, like people are getting better sleep. That's kind of cool. And what we know is that the healthier products are for people, mm -hmm. the longer we use them. I know I use windsurfing as an example. By the time I'm 90, I'll probably have given that industry a lot of money because it's given me a lot psychologically, socially, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say, so number one, I live in the Pacific Northwest and I grew up in Gresham, which is right next to Hood River, which is like cool. the yep. windsurfing capital of the world, basically. Or at least they think so. <laughs> it's one of them. It's the, yeah, the North American capital for yeah, sure. Yeah, is this the you know, North American windsurfing capital? Yeah. But the other thing that I was thinking, and I was trying to discipline myself to not interrupt you, but okay, what you're talking about is, you know, this is almost like a Jedi mind power. How do you make sure that you're using it for good? Because you could go down the path of the evil Zuckerberg and, you know, use all technological insights to make people permanently addicted to your string of advertisements. You know, to me, that is the very definition of evil. I personally think Facebook and Instagram are more dangerous to the fabric of the world mental health than every cigarette that's ever been smoked in the history of mankind. You know, all tobacco companies put together, I think Meta is worse than all of them combined on an order of magnitude. But that's me. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, fundamentally, you have to architect it with all that in mind in the first place. And, you know, there's that saying, like, the path to hell has been paved on good intentions. And you, know, you think of any technology that's sufficiently powerful. And it, it's like Solston's not there yet. We talked about crossing the chasm. Yeah. You know, so we only work with game developers right now. We only work in a play setting. Actually, we have a couple non-gaming customers that like are more in the health and fitness related field. But here's this thing is if you can't measure something, you can improve it. So there are developers out there who, when we were like starting to grow, said, I don't want to use Solstone. We're like, why? Well, then I'd 
have to know if my game's giving customers anxiety. And if you actually look at the gambling industry, they figured this out a long time ago. They're kind of the first to the party. They know that if you cause addiction, you're actually going to get way less money out of that customer. And so addiction's bad. And if you look at games, I'll give you an example. There's a game called Game of War. Maybe some people remember it. It was like Super Bowl commercials. I think like Kate Moss or something was in the commercials. But that game was built on, you know, basically an addiction platform. When they did that commercial, I'm friends with some of the guys that were there. One of the things they mentioned was they had literally spent so much advertising dollars on Instagram and Facebook that they'd kind of like bought and churned Facebook's entire possible audience of customer. And so they had to go. How do you even do that? It's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, the game was making about a billion dollars a year. So just burning and churning and burning and churning. And then if you look at that same time period, Supercell, who they happen to be one of our customers, they make games like Clash of Clans that a lot of people have heard of. One of the focus, I'm half finished, and it's a very finished thing to do that I learned from one of the co-founders was we wanted something that like brothers could do together and not have to talk to each other. So, you know, that's this is kind of fun to hear that, but it was always focused on solving a human problem. And here we are 10 years later, and Supercell is still making 10 bil- or $1 billion a year. Game of War is gone. That's gone in the dirt. So part of it, we have this thing called a human-centered score or a player-centered score. Mm -hmm. And what it's actually predicting is the long-term LTV of the customer. And I always say this is like the dirty secret we know that's not dirty. It's true. It's that the healthier your products are for people, the more your podcasts actually impact people's lives in a positive way, the more long-term retention you're going to get out of your listeners. And I think, you know, the it's, it's the same, like I think Warren Buffett had this quote like, the good thing about capitalism is it gives people what they want. The bad thing about capitalism is it gives people what they want. And in many ways, you know, like things like Meta, things like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, a lot of it sometimes is the race to the bottom of the brainstem. And yes. I think this is where precisely what it is. People get a little confused and they go, they like we all like to think that we're in control of our reality. If you were in control of your attention use TikTok and use Instagram and command your attention for the entire time that you're using it. Most people within, you know, a couple seconds, not just even 10 seconds, 20 seconds, their attention's already gone and they're in a passive relationship with that environment. Maybe there's a Buddhist monk out there who can just use TikTok all day and just like, they're in control, (laughs) they're absorbing the media. I don't like this account anymore, off. But the thing is, I think, you know, things like Facebook and, and Meta, they're products of capitalism, they're products of delivering what consumers kind of mm-hmm. wanted. But what we want and what we need are very different. It's kind of yes. like work from home. You know, we all did it during the pandemic. And it's like, hey, wait, it's healthy to interact with people? Yes, it is. So, you know, we get our microbiome. It's good for that. It's good for all these different things. But with Solston, so from day one, we architected it. So A, we said we are never, ever going to connect real identity to your psychological profile. So that was number one. Number two, when you get assessed- Check. You checked off one, one ethical box, keep going. Number two, we wanted to make sure that the user is always empowered around their data. So one of the theses of Solston was, can we get to a point where you have a Solston app and you have your, your Solston ID, which doesn't know who you are in real life, but now you can say, you know what? I want this game to personalize to me and not this game. So being in control of who is personalizing to you, who is not, because personalization is nice. If we know that something's healthier for you, why wouldn't we want that to be a part of your digital experience? So, but putting users in the driver's seat, that's really 
the future of experience, we think. And also, if you look at AI, there's an AI ethicist that brought up, you know, if you look at like Terminator, if AI ever becomes a general intelligence, which we're pretty far away from, but let's just say it did. Uh, one of the things he supposed was, well, I wouldn't want to wake up knowing it knows how we treated it. Because human beings don't treat or talk to AI in very nice ways most of the time. And so with that being said, you know, I think there's a fundamental value in, in who we are as human beings, as a species. And if we don't allow technology to have that component to it, like think of a like button, like the person that designed the like button, I don't think they had any bad intentions. I think they're like, hey, this is cool. People are getting, a, we're getting a lot of engagement. You know, it's like, it's just, we're optimizing for what the business needs to survive. I don't think, you know, they were like, hey, this is going to really knock your person's player centered score, your human centered score in like three years from now. And it's going to cause addiction. It's going to cause problems. It's going to cause churn. And now you're going to have to figure out how to acquire new businesses to make up for that, like Instagram, like, and maybe how do you engineer that in a way where you can accomplish engagement goals, but also achieve health goals? Because I think engagement kind of, it can be a dirty word, but it's really not a dirty word. Like if you think of your relationship with your partner, your spouse, it's like, yeah, I'm in this really healthy relationship, super not engaging. We're not engaged with each other at all. Like we want engagement, but it needs to be meaningful. And so how do we enable all the best creators in the world? That's who we get. We have the luxury of working with these just brilliant creatives. And a lot of them go into gaming because it's an interactive media. Yeah. And before Solston, they're designing like 45-year-old male, like Star Trek. I got the perfect product for that person. It's just like assumption graveyard. And so now you have, you're enabling these really creative people to understand, ooh, like these people really value family. They're altruistic. They're open to new experiences. They're very collective at the same time. Like, okay, now I actually know I can, it's, it's kind of like an empathy engine. Mm -hmm. I can actually understand who I'm creating this for. And rather than build a digital world that's like a grid, which that's the direction we've been heading, you know, so if you measured the average American city and mm -hmm. said, oh, it's a okay, we it's a grid. We optimize for efficiency. There's a good book by James Kunstler called The Geography of Nowhere. We did a really good job of creating that as a country. And then you go to like, people will go to a small town in Italy and like, I just feel good here. It's like, yeah, the city was built around people. It was built around human beings. They didn't have data points, but that was still the, the focus back then. It was then. central planner either. What they did was they had a building and it was a dirt road and somebody paved it with cobblestones. They put another building up. And that's yep. the reason why the roads are all windy is because they didn't drive cars down the roads. They, they either walked or they had horses pulling carts. Yeah. It was organic. And that path was a goat path before it was. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, if we look at like that organic, it's very, it sits very close to nature. One of the things I used to say when I was a therapist, like when people asked me, like, what do you think one of the major causes of mental health issues are today? And of course, there's people that have genetic disorders. There's people that have very real things that are, you know, cause mental health issues. But when I look at all the patients I saw, and I looked at a lot of the stuff that I did and what actually helped people versus not. I said, sins against nature was kind of what I went with. And I practiced in Utah. So that resonated with a lot of my clients there. But what does that mean? Like, are you getting sunlight? Are you going on walks? Are you drinking water? Are you spending time outside? Are you like all these sort of things? Like I remember I had a one, one client who came in horrible anxiety, like diagnosed. He's on all these you know, pills and stuff. And I said, walk me through your day, like your ins and outs. And I went, well, 
I drink about, um, I drink a lot of monster energy drinks. How much? About 11 a day. Okay. How about this? How about we drink five monster energy drinks tomorrow and then put water in the monster energy drink can. So you still feel like you're cool and you're drinking monster comes back the next week. He's like, I feel so much better. Okay. Now let's start stacking. Yeah. But like nature, water, you know, these sort of things, like how much, you know, artificial things are we doing? And so for the internet, we believe that making things, making human beings understandable, the majority of people are well-intended. The majority of people really want to do the right thing. And so what we find with our customers, especially in gaming, people that build play experiences, they didn't get into that business because they're like, ooh, I'm going to just like make a ton of money and screw a bunch of people over. Where I don't like, I don't think necessarily that was Zuckerberg's intention. I think yeah. if you look at that case, I think, you know, the, the thing with like Facebook, for example, when you look at it from the outside, you have somebody that's, you know, probably, you know, I don't want to throw any like diagnoses or anything, but yeah, let's just say socially less capable. And in a lot of ways, like when we think about prosthetics, like it's very normal if you're missing an arm to go get a prosthetic to help you with life. And I think Zuckerberg was brilliant and he built a thing that helped him with his social issues. And that's kind of the irony of it. You have social media now that the whole world is on that was built as a tool to help a person that didn't have maybe some social skills as a kind of nice way of of putting it. And that's not who should be running a social network. It's definitely, he was the right person to build it. But in terms of, you know, running it and how that actually becomes sustainable, that's where like a partner like Solston, if Facebook said, hey, we want to switch our narrative around. We want to start understanding how we're positively impacting people. Mm-hmm. What are those things? How we like reduce addiction? We'd say, cool, like let's team up on that. But we're not here for them to go, yeah, we're going to make this more addicting and things like that. And I think they ran into like what Philip Morris ran into where, you know, initially Philip Morris was the first filtered cigarette. So they're like, they were kind of uh, always at the cutting edge of trying to like not kill their customers. If you look at the history of PMI, like a dead customer isn't a good customer. But then all of a sudden there's all this money there and PR in the 70s. And then they had to get through that other side. And I think when we look back in like 10, 20 years from now, that's probably part of what we'll see from Facebook is, you know, you have TikTok as an incumbent. And then I know we're, we're diverting here, but like that's, that's fine. I think it's, that's it's fine. a big challenge. That's fine. This is fun. <laughs> well, and, you know, because, and I think that's right, it's because you're, you know, you know, my diatribe earlier in this episode, notwithstanding, there are very few people who set out to create a toxic, soulless organization that sucks the life out of their customers and employees. It happens, but there's very few people who like do that deliberately. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, oh my goodness, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything I should have asked you that didn't? Is there anything left on the floor that we should uh, pick up and unpack? I mean, you you brought, the, I think that last point on, you know, people first leaders, maybe just to, you know, the podcast itself. I think what's interesting is you look at employee statistics right now mm-hmm. and they're, they're not good, globally speaking. You know, you look at the layoffs that have been happening in not just in tech, but across big companies now. And I think it's something like in 2016, about like 75%, something like that of employees were like, really optimistic about, you know, changes in businesses, open to supporting changes, mm-hmm. things like that. And you look at things today, I think it's like, it's somewhere in like the low thirties or something like that in terms of percents. And so I think a lot of people went through a lot of change fatigue with, with COVID, you know, people are, are less engaged, which makes sense. Like 
you're on calls all day with. And so how is like, what is the future of workforce and culture and things like that? I mean, we are fortunate enough. We got selected as we're a smaller company, but as one of the top hundred companies to work for, for innovators by Fast Company. So we're up there with like the Spotify's and things like that. You know, I think there's a lot of really good companies right now that are underwater with employees and managing like people, you know, like projection is, is a very real thing. Like people tend to have a lot of issues in their personal life. And we forget that our work is like our most intimate thing we do. Like a lot of us spend more time doing it than with our partner or with our friends. And then a lot of times, especially those, if you have a side hustle. Yeah. Especially if you have a side hustle, then that's all you're doing. And what we did is we took the workplace that people all went into. And a lot of times people ended up in the home where all of those things kind of just blended together. You know, and so if you look at, there's some interesting psychological studies on like putting your office in a part of the home where you don't spend a lot of time. Most people don't have that luxury. They're in their rooms, they're in their, you know, in their living spaces and not realizing how our brains, what we do sync up. So, you know, with work and home and that all of a sudden they start to blend. And I think what, one of the things we try to focus on at, at Solston is how do we bridge empathy gaps? Because everybody has them. Like most of the time when I've seen people really mad about things, they're typically lacking quite a bit of information on what happened on the other side. We have like 25 different countries represented at our company. And I'll go through this quite a bit where people be like, hey, that I didn't really like how that person wrote that. And I'm like, yeah, they didn't like how you responded. Like literally had an employee go, Germans should wear badges for us that say maybe offensive. I said, Californians should wear badges for Germans that say may be easily offended. And, you know, we kind of have this joke as a company, like Americans, when they read, right? Like when they read radical candor, they're like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Every German I know, because we have our companies based in Berlin and the US. So every German who reads that, like they're really confused that at least the Germans I've known, they're like, what did I just read? Why is this radical? Isn't this just how you have effective communication? And there's like, there's some interesting studies. So we tend to focus a lot on, hey, we're going to be remote. Our neurology is getting wired around where we live. Yeah. How are we really getting effective communication? And I'm, I just told someone, I'm like sick and tired of on the American side, us always saying the world has to bend to us, speak English. Like, you know, I'm like, literally I'll read something and I'm like, they literally just wrote that directly in German, but in English words. And I'm sorry that it doesn't feel like let's have, let's both kind of come together. And so, you know, for, I think Solston, we have this like really cool multinational team. I think this is going to be more and more the norm for Mm -hmm. all companies. It's just a reality of globalization and being able to bridge these things while also, you know, we, from a healthcare perspective, I came out and was like, Hey, what's the best insurance we can do? That's it. And I, I literally, I've had, I had a company before this I literally do not understand how most large companies do not do that. It should be a part of like the baseline. You kind of like stack all these things together, put them in a package. And I think what a lot of people are struggling with today, it's a conversation. And a lot of times it's right now, I think for a lot of businesses anyway, it feels so one-sided, I think sometimes from employees and who's there. And I think creating those open conversations, if we talk about toxic workplaces, a lot of the times when people say this is a toxic workplace, you know, my question is, well, what does toxicity mean to you? And oftentimes, so I had an employee come to me just the other week. He said, thanks, Joe. I was like, for what? 
He's a developer. He's like, yeah. this is the first place I've ever worked that hasn't felt toxic. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That's really good to hear. That's great feedback. We have like our ENPS is 77. I'm like, but you know how that happens? Like we tend to lay off the really toxic people. Even if they're, you know, people go, hey, we got a really, really high performer here. But if the attributes, if people are not talking to them, yeah. people are ignoring them. There's a famous human factors study that was, well, not famous, but it's kind of well known in that community where the top salesperson was known as being like, the guy who's like, this place is toxic and stuff, but he was actually the toxic guy. Yeah. Doesn't really surprise me. Yeah. They gave him a promotion and moved him to another building. And the whole sales team just did insane in terms of performance. But this individual thought he got a promotion. He was removed and then he quit the company. But I think, you know, for where things are at today, I think there are a lot of companies that struggle with that. And I didn't employ or ask me, hey, Joe, how do we think about psychological safety? in the workplace because it's it's popular it's you know it comes up a lot and you know my first question was like it's a new person is that something that like what do you mean by that because what you'll find is every employee has typically a different definition of that and what's fascinating is when you look at teams that have lots of this is back to our completionism example again we have lots of teams that have high levels of psychological safety when you actually measure their psychological traits what you'll find is that they're really high in emotional resilience. And so if you think of children and like if a child doesn't feel safe, they're going to go to the safe adult. They're going to go to the adult that is put together, that's stable, that's mentally okay. A lot of times people that request psychological safety, and that's not the case for this person, but a lot of times the people requesting it, they're not the ones who are emotionally resilient. So if you stack a whole team, that, and they usually all have different requests together, of people that have that, what you end up with is a really tricky workplace. I think I see, I have a lot of other founders that mm -hmm. come to me and they're like, hey, how do you guys work through those challenges? And I've just been noticing it's like, it's a thing right now. Wow. There's something in the water. And so with that, like the same assessment work that we do, when we've gotten busy, we went by the wayside. But for most people that are at Solston, you had to do a psychological assessment to become a part of the team. And we look for things like that. Uh, we look for, hey, does this person have a sound level of emotional resilience? Because that's going to lead to a psychologically safe workplace. So I know like I pivoted a little bit there, but this just how are like, you know, if we're, I always say to the team, like team comes first, then the customer, then the investor. That's part of why we prioritize all these health related things and what, what we can do there as much as possible. I'm like, if you guys are not doing well, customers are not going to do well. You're not going to build. If we're saying, hey, we're creating literally player first experiences, human first experiences as above, so below, if we're not practicing what we preach internally, we're not going to be able to do that from a product perspective either. So that's definitely an emphasis. One of the problems though, my psych 101 professor, I remember him saying, okay, so about one third of you who are here are here because you have a specific research topic that you're really interested. You're interested in clinical neuropsychology or the psychology of sports or something like that. Another third of you are here because your entire life, everyone's told you everything and you want to be a psychologist. And you're like, might as well get paid for it. People dump everything on me anyway. And another third of you are here because you want to fix your problems. And for that third, I would recommend not taking this class anymore. And so I think like one of the catch 22s of working through like, you know, well, we'd, we'd had Sometimes people come to interviews with us and 
say like, hey, I, I heard about all the you know benefits and things, and you guys, you know, your focus on psychology and things like that. And it's and also all of a sudden, as you scale, it can become tricky when you create really good workplaces too, because then it might attract people that also are not there for the right reasons. They're not there because of the mission, the vision of the company, mm-hmm. building camaraderie with the team. They're there because they're trying to get something for themselves. And it's kind of like Minnesota, not to, that's where I'm from. First state that's out of the recession. It's like they're in the green. So if, I mean, not that we're, we're in a recession, but if you look at like states right now, Minnesota was the first state to kind of basically tame inflation, so to yeah. speak. And what that's done is there's a lot of like healthcare tourism in Minnesota. Okay. There's a lot of people that like, you know, from a welfare perspective, they'll come here because everything's free. Like all of a sudden your healthcare is free, your housing, all these things are taken care of. And so you create really good ecosystems and then permeability. I, I said to someone who was in government here, I was like, why don't you guys just lay out what you did and give that for free to other states, like help other states do that and help as a country balance things out. But I think that's one of the tricky things right now. You have a huge environment of employees that are a little less engaged than before COVID, lots of stuff going on, you know, lots of home life, lots of sitting in chairs, not good for cognition. And then kind of a lot of the economy where it's at, which sort of, I think for a lot of people trying to build, grow companies, grow teams, created a lot of, a lot of challenges. And then you add to that multiculturalism, which is great, but definitely you can have, I had one engineer and one data scientist. He came to me. He's like, we both said the exact same thing in the meeting. We both agreed about the exact same thing. We were both excited about the exact same thing. Then we went and did completely different things. One's a Belarusian guy. One's an Englishman. And you know, it shows culture and communication and how as we globalize, it's like just because somebody says something a certain way, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily being mean. It's like they're trying to communicate in their way. So how do we create a system where it's like, Okay, go back. It's almost like kids. Go back and talk to each other, please. Thank you. Like, you know, so that's kind of, um, I don't know. I, I, if I was, you know, building a company today and had to like step by, like from scratch, I think these are things that we have, that you have to think about that five years ago just yeah. weren't there. Wow. I think this is probably going to end up being a two parter, but that's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, no, no, it's fine. This is the most fun I've had in a conversation in a little while. Cool. So Joe, give us your last couple of thoughts and then uh, let everybody know. I mean, of course, you know, give everybody your website, but then uh, wherever you would like to connect with people at. Most yeah. people on this podcast, it's LinkedIn, but I try not to assume. That's me, LinkedIn. So Joe Sheppy, or you can search Solston. Would love to connect. Love to you know, strike up a conversation about any of this stuff we talked about today. And you can find us at solston.io. So if you're interested in seeing the products, seeing what we do, there's a little book of demo thing there and you can kind of get an idea of how your company can become more human-centered, I guess, and customer-centric. But yeah, really appreciate you having me on today, Doug. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the People First Leaders podcast. If you are a successful People First founder or CEO who would like to be on this show, please visit peoplefirstleaders.net forward slash guest. If this interview resonated, Would you please share it on social media? Just take a quick screenshot on your phone and post it on your favorite social channel. Then make sure to tag me at Doug Value so I can give you and your business a shout out on a future episode. If you know somebody who'd be a great guest, please tag them on social and include the hashtag PeopleFirstLeaders. I really love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're releasing new content and episodes all the time. So make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. 
Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show, and they mean a lot to me personally. And also, I would like to connect with you on social. My handle is at Doug Value, or you can just go to peoplefirstleaders.net where all of the links are posted. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.